Chapter Eight of Warwick the Kingmaker by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Warwick in Exile. The adventures of Warwick after the army of York broke up have luckily been preserved to us in some detail. He and his father, together with the Duke and his two sons, Edward and Edmund, fled southwards together with a few score of horse, hotly pursued by Sir Andrew Trollope and his men. So close was the chase that John and Thomas Neville, who lingered behind their brother and father, both having been wounded at Bloor Heath, were taken prisoners. Presently the party was forced to break up by the imminence of their peril. The Duke of York and his second son, Edmund, turned off into Wales with the design of taking ship for Ireland. Salisbury, Warwick, and Edward Plantagenet, the young Earl of March, York's eldest son, and Salisbury's godchild and nephew, accompanied by Sir John Dinham, and only two persons more, fled across Herefordshire by crossroads avoiding the towns, and then by a hazardous journey through Gloucestershire and Somersetshire, reached the coast of Devon, apparently somewhere near Barnstable. There the fugitives turned into a fishing village where Sir John Dinham bought for two hundred and twenty-two nobles, the sum of the party's resources, a one-masted fishing smack. He gave out that he was bound for Bristol and hired a master and four hands to navigate the little vessel. When they had got well out from land, Warwick asked the master if he knew the seas of Cornwall and the English Channel. The man answered that he was quite ignorant of them, and had never rounded the land's end. Then all that company was much cast down, but the earl, seeing that his father and the rest were sad, said to them that by the favour of God and St. George he would himself steer them to a safe port. And he stripped to his doublet and took the helm himself, and had the sail hoisted and turned the ship's bows westward, much to the disgust we doubt not of the master and his four hands, who had not counted on such a voyage when they hired themselves to sail to Bristol town. It was not for nothing that Warwick had ranged the channel for two years. He now proved that he was a competent seaman by navigating the little vessel down the Bristol channel, round the land's end, and across to Guernsey. Here they were eight days wind-bound, but putting forth on the ninth, ran safely up the channel and came ashore at Calais on November 3rd, just twenty days after the rout of Ludford. Counting the crew, they had been eleven souls in the vessel. Warwick found Calais still safe in the hands of his uncle Falconbridge, whom he had left in charge of the town and of his wife and daughters when he went to England two months before. Overjoyed at the news, Falconbridge came to meet him on the quay and fell on his neck. Then all those lords went together in pilgrimage to Notre-Dame de Saint-Pierre and gave thanks for their safety. And when they came into Calais, the mayor and the aldermen and the merchants of the staple came out to meet them and made them good cheer, and that night they were merry enough when they thought they might have found Calais already in the hands of their enemies. Such indeed might well have been their fortune, for the Duke of Somerset was already at Sandwich with some hundreds of men-at-arms. The king had appointed him captain of Calais, and he was on his way to remove Falconbridge and get the town into his own keeping. 
but the southwest wind which blew warwick up from guernsey had kept somerset on shore that very evening the wind shifted and late at night somerset's herald appeared before the water gate to warn the garrison that his master would arrive to take command next day then the guard answered the herald that they would give his news to the earl of warwick who was their sole and only captain and that he should have warwick's answer in a few minutes the herald was much abashed and got him away and went back that same night to his master no one in england knew what had become of warwick or salisbury and somerset's surprise was as great as his wrath when he found that they had anticipated him at calais next morning he set sail with his forces of which the greater part were comprised of sir andrew trollope's soldiers making for guine with the intention of attacking calais from the land side but a tempest rose up while he was at sea and though he and most of his men came ashore at guine the vessels that contained their horses and stores and armour were driven into calais harbour for safety and compelled to surrender to warwick the earl thanked providence for the present and not the duke of somerset and was much pleased at the chance for his men were greatly in want of arms he had the prisoners forth and went down their ranks then he picked out those that had been officers under him and had sworn the oath to him as captain of calais and threw them into prison but the rest he sent away in safety saying that they had but served their king to the best of their knowledge only lord audley somerset's second in command son to the peer whom salisbury had slain at bloor heath was not permitted to depart and was consigned to the castle but the men who had broken their oath to warwick were brought out into the market-place next day and beheaded before a great concourse of citizens somerset and sir andrew trollope had been received into guine and made it their headquarters but for some time they could do nothing against calais because they were in want of arms and horses it was not till they had got themselves refitted by help of the french of boulogne that they were able to harm warwick meanwhile they were practically cut off from england for warwick's ships held the straits and neither news nor men came across to them presently somerset set to work to intercept warwick's supply of provisions which was drawn mainly from flanders and the earl had to arrange that every market-day parties of the garrison should ride out to escort the flemings in their wagons it might have gone hard with calais if this source of supply had been cut off but warwick had concluded secret agreement with duke philip by which the introduction of food into the town was to be winked at by the flemish officials notwithstanding any treaties with england that might exist neither somerset nor warwick got much profit out of the continual skirmishes that resulted from the attempts of the lancastrians to cut off the wagon trains from dunkirk and gravelines so passed the months of november and december fourteen fifty nine with no stirring incidents but plenty of bickering but christmas tide brought with it abundant excitement the queen had at last taken measures to reinforce somerset and lord rivers with his son sir anthony woodville had come down to sandwich with a few hundred men to take the first safe opportunity of crossing to guine but the time was stormy and the troops mutinous they got little or no pay and scattered themselves over the neighbourhood to live at free quarters so that rivers lay in sandwich almost unattended 
so at christmas tide the earl called together his men-at-arms and asked whether it was not possible to get back his great ship that he had used when he was admiral for it lay at sandwich in lord river's hands with several ships more and sir john dinham answered yea and swore to take it back with god's aid if the earl would give him four hundred men to sail with him so the earl bade his men arm and fitted out his vessels and he gave the charge of the business to sir john dinham and sir john wenlock that wise knight who had done many feats of arms in his day they set out at night and arrived off sandwich before dawn waiting for the tide to rise they ran into the harbour at five in the morning no one paid any attention to them for the men of sandwich thought they were but timber ships from the baltic as all the men-at-arms were kept below hatches there was no stir in the town and wenlock was able to seize the ships and fit them out in haste while dinham swept the streets and caught lord river's men-at-arms as they turned out to see what was the matter sir anthony woodville was captured one hour later as he rode into the town from london whither he had gone to ask the queen for a supply of money lord rivers himself was found still asleep in his bed at the black friars and carried on board his own ship before he could realize what was happening the men of sandwich like the rest of the kentish men had no desire to harm the yorkists so that there was no fighting and dinham and wenlock sailed home at their ease without striking a single blow with their prisoners and all the warships in the port save the grasse dieu alone which was found quite unready for the sea that evening they were again in calais and landed in triumph to deliver their spoils to warwick a quaint and undignified scene followed when the prisoners were brought out so that evening lord rivers and his son were taken before the three earls accompanied by a hundred and sixty torches and first the earl of salisbury rated lord rivers calling him a knave's son that he should have been so rude as to call him and these other lords traitors for they should be found the king's true lieges when he should be found a traitor indeed and then my lord warwick rated him and said that his father was but a squire in that he had made himself by his marriage and was but a maid lord so that it was not his part to hold such language of lords of the king's blood and then my lord of march rated him likewise lastly sir anthony was rated for his language of all three lords in the same manner if rivers had any sense of humour he must have felt the absurdity of being raided by the nevilles who more than any other race in england had risen by a series of wealthy alliances for having made himself by his marriage but probably anger and fear were sufficient to keep him from any such reflections we could wish that warwick had been less undignified in the hour of his triumph but if his words were rough his actions were not rivers and his son were sent to join lord audley in the castle but they were well treated in their captivity and came to no harm before many months were out they joined their captors cause it would have been hard for the actors in the scene to foresee the changes that ten years were to make in their relations to each other by fourteen seventy rivers was destined to find himself the father-in-law of the young earl of march who was now exercising his tongue against him in imitation of the nevilles and to lose his life in the service of the house of york warwick on the other hand was to become the deadly enemy of the young prince whom he was now harbouring and training in arms 
and to adopt the Lancastrian cause which Rivers had deserted. The months of January and February passed in continual skirmishing with Somerset and the garrison of Guine, which led to no marked result, but about the beginning of Lent news arrived at Calais that the Duke of York, of whom nothing definite had been heard since October, was now in great force in Ireland, where he had got possession of Dublin and was greatly strengthened by the earls and homagers of that country. Warwick at once resolved to sail to Ireland, to concert measures with his uncle, and to learn if it would be possible to invade England, for it was obvious that unless some vigorous offensive action were taken in the spring, the Lancastrians would finally succeed in bringing enough men across to form the siege of Calais, and then the town could not hold out forever. Accordingly, though the storms of March were at their highest, Warwick equipped his ten largest ships, manned them with 1,500 sailors and men-at-arms, the best stuff in Calais, and sailed down the channel for Ireland. The voyage was undisturbed by the enemy, but terribly tempestuous and protracted. However, the Earl reached Waterford at last, and found there not only York and his son Rutland, but his own mother, the Countess of Salisbury, who had fled over to Ireland when she heard that her name was inserted among the list of persons attainted by the Lancastrian Parliament, which met at Leicester in December 1459. Warwick found the Duke in good spirits, and so hopeful that he was ready to engage to land in Wales in June with all the force that could be raised in Ireland if Warwick would promise to head a descent on Kent at the same moment. This plan was agreed upon, and the Earl set sail to return about May 1st, taking with him his mother, who was anxious to rejoin her husband, whom she had not seen for nearly a year. Meanwhile, the news of Warwick's departure for Ireland had reached the Lancastrian government, and the Duke of Exeter, Warwick's successor in the office of Admiral, had sworn to prevent him from returning to Calais. Accordingly, Exeter, with the great ship called the Grasse and three great carracks, and ten other ships all well armed and ordered, was now besetting the channel. When Warwick was off Start Point, the vessel which sailed in advance of his squadron to reconnoitre the way returned in haste with the news that a squadron was lying off Dartmouth, and that some fishing boats, with whom communication had been held, reported the Duke of Exeter to be in command. Warwick was resolved to fight, though the enemy was considerably superior in force. He sent for his captains on board his carvel and prayed that they would serve him loyally that day, for he had good hope that God would give him the victory, to which they answered that they were well disposed enough for a fight, and that the men were in good heart. Accordingly, the Earl's ten ships formed line and bore down on the Duke's fourteen. A fight appeared imminent, when suddenly the whole Lancastrian fleet went about and fled in disorder into Dartmouth Harbour, which lay just behind them. This unexpected action was caused by mutiny on board. When the Duke had given orders to prepare for action, his officers had come to him in dismay to announce that the men would not arm to fight their old commander, and that if he came any nearer to the Earl, the crews would undoubtedly rise and deliver them over to the enemy. Accordingly, Exeter gave orders to retire into the harbour. Warwick, however, could not know of the cause of the enemy's retreat, and having a good west wind behind him, 
and a great desire to get back to Calais, from which he had now been absent more than ten weeks, pursued his journey without attempting anything against Dartmouth. He reached Calais in safety on June 1st, and was proud to restore his mother, who had suffered grievously from the sea during her voyage to his father's arms. Salisbury and Fokenbridge had been much alarmed at the length of his absence, and the more faint-hearted of the garrison had begun to murmur that he had deserted them for good, and had fled to foreign parts to save his own person. Now, however, all was stir and bustle in Calais, for Salisbury and Fokenbridge thoroughly approved of the plan of invasion which had been concerted at Dublin. The news from England, indeed, was all that could be desired. The reckless attainting of all the Yorkists by the Parliament of Leicester had met with grave disapproval. The retainers of the Lancastrian lords had been committing all sorts of misdoings, chief among which was the unprovoked sack of the town of Newbury by the followers of Ormond, Earl of Wiltshire. London was murmuring savagely at the execution of seven citizens, who in company with a gentleman of the house of Neville had been caught in the Thames on their way to Calais to join the earls, the unlearned preachers whom the government put up to preach against York at Paul's Cross were hooted down by the mob. The commons of Kent were signifying in no doubtful terms their willingness to join the earls the moment that the banner of the white rose should be unfurled in England. A fragment of a ballad hung by an unknown hand on the gate of Canterbury in June is worth quoting as an expression of their feelings. Send home, most gracious Jesu, most benign, send home the true blood to his proper vine, Richard, Duke of York, thy servant and sign, whom Satan not seethes to set at disdain, and by thee preserve it he may not be slain. Set him ut sedeat in principibus, as he did before, and so to our new song, Lord, thine ear incline, Gloria lauseton or tibi sit Christe redemptor. Edward, the Earl of March, whose fame the earth shall spread, Richard, Earl of Salisbury, named Prudence, with that noble knight and flower of manhood, Richard, Earl of Warwick, shield of our defence, also little Falconbridge, a knight of great reverence, Jesu, restore them to the honour they had before. Nor was it only the commons that were ready to join in a new appeal to arms. The partisans of York among the great houses who had not definitely committed themselves at the time of the rout of Ludford, and so had escaped arrest and attainder, let it be known at Calais that they were ready for action. Chief among them was the Duke of Norfolk, and the two brothers, Lord Borcher and Borcher, Archbishop of Canterbury, who pledged themselves to put their retainers in motion the moment that Warwick should cross the sea. It was in no spirit of recklessness, then, that Warwick resolved to cross into Kent in the last week of June with every man he could spare from Calais. As a preliminary to his advance, he had resolved to clear away the only Lancastrian force that was watching him, a body of five hundred men-at-arms which had been sent down to Sandwich to replace Lord Rivers' troops and to endeavour to communicate with Somerset at Guine. This body was commanded by Osbert Mundford, one of the officers of the Calais garrison who had deserted Warwick in company with Sir Andrew Trollope. Accordingly, on June 25th, Sir John Denham, the captor of Rivers, sailed over to Sandwich for the second time and fell on Mundford's force. There was a hot skirmish, for on this occasion the Lancastrians were not caught sleeping, 
but again the Yorkists won the day. Dinham indeed was wounded by a shot from a bombard, but his men stormed the town, routed the enemy, and took Montfort prisoner. He was sent over to Calais, where he was tried for deserting his captain, as the prisoners of November 3rd had been, and beheaded next day outside the walls. On the 27th, Warwick himself, his father, the Earl of March, Lord Falconbridge, Wenlock, and the rest of the leaders at Calais crossed over to Sandwich with two thousand men in good array, leaving in the town the smallest garrison that could safely be trusted with the duty of keeping out Somerset. They had published before their landing a manifesto, which set out the stereotyped Yorkist grievances once more, the weak government, the crushing taxes, the exclusion of the king's relatives from his council, the diversion of the revenue into the pockets of the courtiers, the misdoings of individual Lancastrian chiefs, the oppression of the king's lieges, and all the other customary complaints. The three earls had only been in Sandwich a few hours when, as had been agreed, the Archbishop of Canterbury came to join them with many of the tenants of the sea arrayed in arms. They then moved forward with numbers increasing at every step, for the Kentishmen came to meet them by thousands, and no one raised a hand against them. The Lancastrians had been caught wholly unprepared. They seemed to have been expecting raids from Warwick on the eastern coast, not on the southern, and except Munford's routed force, there was no one in arms south of the Thames. The king and queen were at Coventry, and most of the Lancastrian lords scattered each in his own lands. Lord Scales and Lord Hungerford were in command of London, where there were present a few other notables, Lord Vesey, Lord Lovell, and John de Foix, titular Earl of Kendal. These leaders endeavoured to fortify the city, posting guns on London Bridge and placing their retainers in the tower, but the aspect of the citizens was threatening, and Warwick was known to be coming on fast. The landing had taken place on the 27th, and on July 1st the three earls and the Archbishop of Canterbury were already before the walls of London. They had marched over seventy miles in four days, taking the route of Canterbury, Rochester, and Dartford, and were at hand long before they were expected. When the archbishop's herald summoned the town, there was some attempt made by the Lancastrian lords to offer resistance, but the mob rose and drove them into the tower, while a deputation of aldermen went forth to offer a free entry to the Yorkist army. On July 3rd, the three earls entered London in state, conducted by the archbishop and a papal legate, a certain bishop of Teramo, who had been sent by Pius II to endeavor to reconcile the English factions and to get them to join in a crusade. He had allowed himself to be talked over by Warwick and did all in his power to further the cause of York. The earls rode to St. Paul's, and there, before a great multitude, both clerical and lay, Warwick recited the cause of their coming into the land, how they had been put out from the king's presence with great violence, so that they might not come to his highness to excuse themselves of the accusations laid against them. But now they were come again by God's mercy, accompanied by their people, for to come into his presence, there to declare their innocence, or else to die upon the field. And there he made an oath upon the cross of Canterbury, that they bore true faith and allegiance to the king's person, whereof he took Christ and his holy mother and all the saints of heaven to witness. 
we shall see that this last promise was not an entirely unmeaning formula in warwick's mouth and that his oath was not like the deliberate perjuries to which others of his contemporaries notably edward the fourth were prone End of chapter eight